All right, everybody, welcome back. This is a full episode of the episode number 27 of the Recovery 27. Lab. 27. 27. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. We have today... Very special guests. Very special guests. Plus one. Plus one. We didn't think that was going to be yeah, able to join one. us. Fantastic. Katie Fantastic. Sullivan and Art. Art, I didn't remember your last name. Klein Schmidt. Yes. It was on the tip of my tongue. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Well, guys, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. We really appreciate well, you guys I'm taking the time. sorry we were a little late. That's totally on me between... I've been in four different time zones in the last six days, and that's no that's not an excuse. It's just a fact. And so please accept my apologies. We are so excited to talk to you guys and keeping up with your progress. Daniel, how did your interview go? You're on the Senate floor? Well, yeah, I was at the, the courthouse in Jackson. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, not the courthouse, the uh, state capitol. Um, and I had an opportunity, a friend of a friend had, uh, this representatives, uh, it, it all just worked out and I seized the opportunity to go and talk to this gentleman, uh, although I've never done anything like that in my life. Uh, and I went and set up all the studio equipment and the, the video failed and everything kind of fell to pieces, but we did get audio on it and it would, it turned out to be a pretty good, pretty good experience. And it was certainly a learning experience for me. Uh, and one I'll certainly always remember, but, uh, thanks for, thanks for what asking did, about wait, that. Like, what did you learn? Like so, about the legislation he's passing? Yeah. Or? So he, he was trying to, um, there's fentanyl testing strips and right now, um, they're illegal. If you're caught with them, it's the same as getting caught with paraphernalia. Um, paraphernalia. So, um, he was putting a bill through and it passed, but now it's got to go. Um, it's not quite there yet, but. Uh, I just wanted to to bring as much attention to the fact that he was doing this as as much as possible. The day before, uh, he was all over the news talking about it, so I hopped on the opportunity to, uh, to try to reach out. And his bill was to make it legal. Yeah, he, his goal, his bill was to make um, fentanyl well, de- testing decriminalize decriminalizing possession of the fentanyl testing strips. Right, right. So it it was. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty awesome experience. Pretty you guys awesome just froze decriminalized fentanyl strips yes testing strips testing oh got it to test to test for the presence of fentanyl right do you guys think i know art and i both dealt with that a little bit when we worked on policy in the government and one concern that we always had is you know if you're really seriously in an addiction you might be attracted to a product that has fentanyl and think, oh my gosh, I could get really high off this. Right. I, th- I think yeah. that was the, the thought process behind it. And, but I mean, you can't really get high off of a fentanyl testing strip. Um, no, no. I mean, the, the strip itself, no need to be illegal. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it was kind of, it's a, it's a silly, silly thing that it's even illegal at this point. Um, right. But, um, all right. But making it criminal. Yeah. That seems, yeah, it, it's it, that's extreme. Yeah, and well, welcome to Mississippi. I mean, <laughs> what, can, <laughs> what more can I say? Um, all right, so I know you guys have um, this wonderful and beautiful foundation set up, and uh, it's been you've you've the it's called Recovery for America now, um, and just from the top, um, you can reach out to these guys at. Uh, the website is recoveryforamerica.org. 
Uh, I've been talking about these guys uh, in the in the um, recent past on the podcast, um, <coughs> talking about what they're doing and basically what what you guys. Do. Well, well, we'll let you jump into that. So, um, let's let's start with this. Where did your passion for helping addicts and alcoholics? Um, gain its most impressive growth and forward momentum. Where did you get started? And, and tell us a little bit about how the, the whole beginning of Recovery for America Now Foundation was, be, was, was born. Go ahead, Art. Uh, well, I, I guess it starts back when I got sober, really. Uh, I had lived a, a long life, 20-something years of addiction, active addiction to multiple different substances, um, sort of going way back. Uh, back in the uh, early days when they had the quaaludes running around and everything else, I asked all the other kind of drugs that I got involved with. And then finally, uh, you know, around the uh, opioid pain mill, uh, the, you know, those uh, pain mills, pain pill clinics, the pill mills uh, was basically towards the end of my using career. And then I got sober in Minnesota. Uh, I lived in a couple of different recovery houses around there. Uh, I lived in an Oxford house. Uh, and then one thing led to another. I started volunteering, uh, taking some of the new admits out on a, a bus tour, working with some of the other people who had mm -hmm. less times with me, less less recovery time than I did, and uh, ended up going back to graduate school, got another degree, uh, and became a, a licensed therapist, uh, eventually earning a PhD in psychology, and then I was recruited to work on the opioid crisis uh, under the previous administration. Okay. So I was appointed by uh, President Trump to the, uh, be the deputy drug czar. Uh, but my passion started, I would say, uh, I just picked up 21 years clean uh, last month. So Congratulations. I would say my passion That's started awesome. after uh, living and working in a recovery community and going through a lot of the pitfalls that I did, especially during early recovery. Walk in the walk. But, yeah. And I have a similar story. It's you know, I think it's, um, I was sober. I'm sober 24 years, December 1st. That's, that's amazing. Um, I love it. And I, it was really alcohol and it was just, but I, I think back to those times, sometimes we go on vacation and I just think to myself, oh my gosh, we were still drinking. First of all, how much more expensive that vacation oh, would yeah. be. I know, right. How much, like, how much crazier the whole thing would be? I don't, I don't, I can't even envision it. But in any event, and went through the same uh, uh, kind of journey as arts in, in that I was a lawyer and I became a prosecutor and I learned that being a prosecutor, you could really help people right. and you could educate people on, you know, you don't have to live like this. And then I became a judge. And as a judge, I quickly saw really the failure of the system to address addiction and addicted people. I mean, really. Um, so it was sort of like, wait, this doesn't make sense. I'm telling you to go take the same exact DUI courses that you took, um, you know, nine prior times in your nine DUIs or your six DUIs or whatever it was. You're going to take the same classes, and if you drink or use drugs, you will go to jail because that was a mandatory condition. Right. You know, no alcohol, no drugs. And I guess I just thought this is ridiculous. Like, obviously, someone who has, you know, even two priors, four priors, five, I said I had one guy with 10 priors. 
if you have that many prior DUIs, you're going to drink because you don't know how not to. Right. And those classes aren't working. And Colorado just particularly didn't have a full, you know, social psycho, you know, uh, psych psycho model. They just did cognitive. If you can think your way out of this. And so I started a drug court and I'm sorry, a DUI court, which then morphed into also a drug court. And I had two separate courts and, um, you know, all the time too, though, and it's really important to remember that when you do this as a job and it's a part of your job, because I was a defense attorney for a while too, and did some interventions on people who came to see me to, you know, when I was defending them and that's really not service service is really doing something and you know, service is service. That's AA, that's baking coffee, that's putting out the, the chairs, that's sponsoring people, that's separate. But is really vital to my husband and I, especially when we had this additional information of how the federal government is working on how do we help addicts on a, on a bigger, on a hopefully a, a larger basis. Even right. if it's one person at a time, how do we help? That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great that you were able to draw on your knowledge of the inside workings of right, right. government to, you know, uh, use bureaucracy to everyone's benefit. Right. And I mean, everything that you've gone through and everything with you went that you went through in your own personal um, drinking and using history, um, you know, I, I have to imagine that it... Um, really, really helped you when dealing with individuals that are struggling with the exact same thing that you were struggling with. So it's a pretty, pretty awesome thing. All right. So, um, are, are there other foundations that kind of do what you guys are doing as far as, um, uh, well, trying probably to get have other type of, of foundations. I what don't know sets you guys apart? Exactly. Uh, what we're, we're aiming to do, but just the other day, I don't want to say the other day, but I think it was just last Thursday, I was at a meeting, it was in Washington, D.C., uh, and it was, this one was put on by their dip that, you know, uh, SAM uh, organization and nonprofit, Smart Approaches uh, Marijuana, but, you know, they convened a big, a, a summit meeting uh, with people in different organizations from across the country. Uh, some, a lot of it was on Zoom, some was in person. So, you know, there isn't like a corralling of ideas and people trying to mesh and address some of the things that we see going on in the country that don't, we don't really like. You know, we're against a lot of this. Um, uh, I mean, the, the term harm reduction has been sort of greatly uh, distorted and exaggerated mm -hmm. to where you're not really reducing anybody's harm. You're enabling the disease of addiction and you're allowing it to sort of fester. And that's exactly, you know, and I got, well, look, let, let me, I hate to interrupt you, but I feel okay. virtually compelled to, Okay. We don't really have a great deal of, like, I was blown away when you were telling Daniel and me what you were telling us about the availability of what is generally known under the umbrella term of harm reduction. So we don't have a great deal of that here, largely because we're such a conservative state. So mm -hmm. tell people briefly, what do you mean by harm reduction? Mm-hmm. 
Well, when I, I mean, I could kind of go into the difference between, you know, helping somebody and enabling somebody. Uh, and right now, I mean, uh, you, you saw where Oregon, this was a while back, they passed the measure 110, where they, they essentially legalized methamphetamine, Oxycontin, cocaine, uh, heroin, and everything else and made really I basically legalized it. But when you start looking at like safe injection sites uh, that are popping up in California and on the East Coast and that, I would say that's not really reducing harm. You're actually incubating disease at that point. Right. You're actually enabling people to uh, stay uh, sick and suffer. Mm -hmm. I, I know like you would say that they, they have like a, they boasted about their, uh, their statistic that like in their first three weeks of operation, it was a New York safe injection site. They had 50 overdose reversals, right? So Right, they, and they, they thought they, of that as a huge win. Correct. But if that was a methadone clinic, that would be the most dangerous methadone clinic on the planet. That They're, they're overdosing 50 people in 30, uh, in like three weeks time. So the, and every time somebody overdoses, they get deeper into their disease. You, you, you're actually having to deal with all the other sort of bodily functions, the brain and the heart and everything else that's under uh, uh, duress from an overdose. So right. uh, to me, that's a, a not something to be really proud of. And if you're really an expert, at uh, a safe injection, why do you have any overdoses at all? Right, right? exactly. I mean, and I and I urge I urge people that uh, if if you if they haven't um, seen or heard the episode with uh, Dr. Drew that Art and Katie did, I absolutely urge you to go listen to that because they have a conversation about this and specifically what's going on in California right now with this harm reduction and. I love people who are passionate and to hear you guys talk with Dr. Drew about, I mean, he is passionate. He is fired up about this, about the yeah, fact that harm reduction is, is doing nothing good. And in fact, it is only making the, the progression of the disease quite possibly happen faster than ever before. Right. Um, so I, I urge folks to, to go and listen to that Dr. Drew podcast. It's unbelievable. Art's always careful to talk about, and, you know, I've learned so much from him, obviously. Um, he, said, he was like the guiding light of our drug court and DUI court without question. But I have to say that, you know, harm reduction does play a role, but this is what happens right. oftentimes in the federal government. There's an idea and it's a small idea. And you kind of say, okay, in order to wean someone off heroin, because it's such a terrible detox. We found this great drug and the FDA has approved it and it's gone through all this bureaucratic everything. And everyone says, okay, great, great. Oh, there it is. That must be the, that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, it might play a small role, but truthfully, you know, ultimately the goal should be in almost every case, complete um sobriety so that right. people can realize the miracle that all of us on this call and all of us the four of us have realized right, right. those people it's funny i was reading matthew perry's book and i went got to the very end and it sounds like i mean he doesn't come out and say this but it sounds like he still is on suboxone and just is going to maintain on suboxone for the rest of his life and says, I'm just not willing in essence to go through how awful it is to get off Suboxone. Right. And Art told us, cause there's a lot of pressure in drug court to make sure that people addicted to opioids, that we had a protocol where they could be on Suboxone. 
And art educated us, be careful, because if you take a drink or you do one thing when someone's on Suboxone, they can get really high, like really, really high. So it's not a... Yeah, it has abuse potential, for sure. It does. It's got a narcotic in it. So like we're sober, but if we took it, we would get high. It, it, that doesn't mean that it's not a valuable tool. Right, it, right. It, it very well could be. So I don't, I, you know, I'm always mindful to sort of say that. Yeah. That, uh, that's a valuable tool. You just got to, I, I always kind of um, asserted that you got to kind of treat it right. You know, and I, I, I prefer to have structure around it more than not. Yeah. Well, and like an in game also an in game, a way to get off of it eventually. You know, I, I yeah, think, yeah, that's that's how I prefer it. But know. then the federal government comes in and they go, okay, this thing that's now been labeled harm reduction and looks like a panacea. They they only see the bio, the biology of the disease. They don't understand right. the social psycho part of the disease. That's right. that's not tangible. So they say, okay, great, the bio, that's perfect. We have the FDA set up. We have this set up. The NIH set up. We have all these things set up. So we'll go after that. And then we'll be able to show statistics and results. And they don't understand the disease from a 360 degree kind of way. So right. then they say, well, all encompassing, right. yeah, we'll keep people alive. So we have this one picture. It's pretty far down on our Twitter. Maybe we could repin it, but it, I, I have shown that picture to probably a hundred people. With, and I take the caption out and just say, what do you think is happening in this picture? And it's a guy standing behind another guy sitting in a chair with a mirror in front of him. And there's cotton balls and there's a needle and this big strapping, you know, uh, very buff, healthy looking guy. Everybody has masks on. And then you say, okay, what do you think's happening? And a hundred percent of the people I've asked have said, oh, they're giving COVID shots. <laughs> and I said, no, they're giving heroin shots. Right. So the, the guy in the chair is going to shoot up with heroin and the guy standing behind him is going to assist him with a wet towel, a warm towel. So the vein comes to the top and then they're going to, he's going to shoot up. And if he dies, that white guy, the, the guy, the stand, guy standing behind him is there to revive him. And that's what a safe injection site looks like. I mean, it really bizarre. is kind of insane. So that picture speaks a thousand words. And just so your listeners are aware, that's your tax dollars. Right. I mean, that is being paid for by your tax dollars. Yeah. It, it's... I don't know. Do you guys think that would have helped? I mean, I don't for anything. I mean, no. No, if there was a place where I could do meth and have no consequences whatsoever, I would I have know. never gotten sober ever in my life. I, I Period. Know, but that's, that's the whole point. That, like, yeah. like you, you said it so beautifully on the on your episode with Dr. Drew. You said, you know, when when I was the judge, you know, that that's that's almost like saying, hey, you know, you can use drugs when you're in my court. I just prefer you not. Like that right. doesn't work for an alcoholic or an addict. Like. We're going to go hard, and, and if we don't have a wall to hit, then we're just not going to stop. Like, nobody comes into AA or, or starts a way of life in recovery on a winning streak. It just doesn't right. happen. It just doesn't happen, right. you know? So it, it's, it's absolutely incredible to me that this kind of nonsense is going on, and uh, it just, I would I have never... To, I used to... 
DUI now. I used to tell my drug court clients, my DUI court clients, just say, let's call them problem solving court. But I used to just say to them, I love you so much. I'm going to hold you accountable. Right. Because you've had this string, you know, you've been able to make this run and you've been able to get to this point in your life because a lot of people did not hold you accountable. Right. Um, and, you know, that's part of the disease we all know, which is the manipulation and do anything you can do to get to the drug. You'll say anything, you'll do anything, your drug of choice, whatever it is. I said, no, I just love you enough. I'm going to hold you accountable. And boy, did they come to that podium <laughs> with a lot of excuses and a lot of sob stories. Oh, yeah. And I promise I'll never do it again. And yeah, they I, said, bet oh, you I do. bet you won't. You're going to serve two days of jail and think about it. Right, right. So, Absolutely anyway. insane. Absolutely insane. All right. So, um, all right. So I, I want to, I've mentioned Dr. Drew a couple of times and I just, I, I have just the utmost respect for him. I, I used to watch him on Love Lines and honest to God, his, his teaching and the way that he would talk with individuals on the show really helped me that was the beginning of my understanding of my own addiction. You know, wow. there was, there was always, there was always trauma involved. And what that did is that helped me to, to, to be kind to the, I didn't have any serious trauma in my childhood, but it made me be kind, learn to be kind to understanding that this person had this happen as a child. And as a result of me listening to Dr. Drew talk with this individual about how trauma is directly related to their addiction, that, that opened up all sorts of doors and windows and ideas for me to be able to be kind when I'm listening and talking to other people who are struggling with this, and then to be able to help them the way that Dr. Drew helped them. So the question is this, um, how did Dr. Drew become aware of the Foundation One, and how has his involvement been helpful uh, in the growth and awareness for uh, Recovery for America now? Uh, well, I, like, my, my wife's a huge Dr. Drew fan, as so is I, am I. Uh, I, you know, I actually came across Dr. Drew when he had, um, I know, I remember the Loveline show, but uh, it was very interesting to me uh, when I was watching him with uh, the treatment center that he was running, I think in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've told him this, and I, I don't want to be hypercritical to anybody, but uh, he's, as far as like medical doctors, he's probably that I've come across probably the, the best uh, uh, treating the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. And and if you, uh, and that kind of really impressed me because when he was talking, I was like, that, that's right, that's right, that's right. About. And then I was watching what he would say to his patients. I'm like, yeah, you know, sort of jamming on that. Uh, so, but, you know, in his story, uh, and we've talked, he and I talked quite a bit. He's got like 30 years experience. I mean, right. and that was a couple of years ago, but uh, 30 years experience. And he also ran a psychiatric hospital and everything else. So he totally uh, grasped the, the disease and understands it. And he understands how it's manifested. And he understands it also from a behavioral and social aspect as well. So he understands the whole, you know, how it encompasses all of life, but I actually coincidentally I met him in the White House. Uh, uh, it's kind of funny. I, I uh, was um, working ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, is uh, where the drugs are comes from, and then they were putting on a great big mental health thing, and so they wanted Dr. Drew to uh, come and speak at it. And then the White House gave me the directive since I was the one guy who actually knew all this stuff. 
So I would be the guy who would Sherpa him around. So that one thing led to another, we became friends. My, my wife was there, he was there with his wife. Uh, and so we kind of clicked from there and it, it's been a, you know, a great relationship. And as far as helping our foundation, he's done wonders. I mean, he's really uh, awesome. He, we had a, a fundraiser in Florida a couple months ago and he was there as a keynote. And uh, it was a very interesting keynote as well because he doesn't just, just speak at people, then he, you know, he extracts questions. And it was like questions from like, you know, just everyday recovering people right. or newly recovering people at a treatment center. So I think what I'll tell you, God story, you were talking, Daniel, about how everything perfectly came together for you to talk to your legislator, your senator, right? right. And um state delegate. And so that's kind of what ha- I was. I mean, Dr. Drew was the guy that I always wanted to meet. I would talk about him to my drug court team, my DUI court team, and I would say, what would Dr. Drew do, you know? And right. and it's so rare, I think, too, what Art's saying, and it would be so wonderful to see the government or, you know, layer on and, and have medical doctors get trained in what addiction actually is and psychiatrists and psychologists. It's shocking the lack of understanding that they have right. of a, of what the disease is. And so here we have a medical doctor who actually understands the disease, right? That's so rare. But we were supposed to, I don't know, I heard he was at the White House to talk to someone something. And I just was like, I have to meet him. I have to meet him. He's like my hero. You know, Daniel, I was exactly <laughs> <Me too. laughs> like you. I know. I was exactly like you. And so someone said, well, why don't you and Art, you know, can take him through this tour or something. And I said, okay. And his, and Susan, his wife, who's incredible, a very good friend. Incredible amazing. Woman. And um, so we met with them. And in order to get in the White House, you have to have all this information. So what had happened, and this was such a God thing, my, um, I had put my birth date in wrong. It was totally my fault. You go quick. I filled those things out all the time. And I put the wrong year in pretending I was younger than I was. <laughs> Not really. I just made a mistake. You and, triggered the um, Al Qaeda protocol at the White House. I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. And so the, you know, these sweet little secret service guys were like, yeah, no, no deal, buddy. You're not getting in. If it doesn't match your license, you're not getting in. Right. And so I just said to Art, you go, because I would never want us to miss that opportunity. Like you go, this was my mistake. You go. So he went in and did this big tour. Here's the God part of it. You guys know me well enough to know I never would have shut up. <laughs> I wanted it all my time with Dr. Drew. Right. And it turned out that Art and Drew like think like they mind meld. They think the same on all the issues. They, you know, one of them has an idea and the other one comes in and says, oh, I, you know, that I thought about that. And then what about this? And they had all this time together, the two of them. And that's the real friendship. So when the mental health um, event came up about two or, I don't know, a month later, you know, Art reached out, they asked Art to reach out to Drew, et cetera, et cetera. And by then they had really formed a relationship. So that was very cool. And I thought, God just kept me right out of that because <laughs> somebody wouldn't have shut up. <laughs> That's awesome. Everything always works out. It really does. It does. But look, God bless y'all for being some boots on the ground effort to try to find, uh, treatment for people because I 
as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that uh, although the prevailing philosophy in the country is the government will do it for you, they may not do it the way you th- it's best. Right. Uh, you know, there's an alarming lack of what I, I mean, and I'm really going to sound like some old fuddy-duddy, but like on social media, there seems to be growing this large idea by young people of a lack of personal responsibility. You know, somebody else is going to do it for me or whatever I think is okay. Or if I believe it, then it's fine. And, you know, just wanting, uh, you know, and it's growing seemingly from the West coast, you know, towards this way, uh, that physicians should just wholesale endorse whatever crazy shit people think. I mean, I, I, I should preface this by saying, uh, so I read Johan Hari's book who lays out a pretty impressive case for what, like they did in Oregon, this decriminalizing, uh, drugs. I don't, I don't know to what extent, but, uh, based on what had happened in Portugal. Right. And I've been curious what the ultimate impact is. I mean, I, I have, I've thought, well, in an effort to try to find new ways to treat addiction and genuinely to allow people to grow and be happier, we should at least listen to what, if, if some expert validly conducts some, some survey or study and has what would seem to be outside of the box answers to these problems, I think we should at least listen. And I'm kind of, I've, I've, I've been hesitant to hop on board with the, yeah, everything should just be, you know, let's just be libertarian about it. You want to do it, knock yourself out, man. Because that really does seem kind of dangerous. I wonder what the real boots on the ground, where the rubber hits the road impact of decriminalizing drug use in Oregon is going to be. I mean, I'd be curious to see how that works out. Do they ultimately have more deaths? Do they have fewer deaths? Do they have increasing crime or or decreasing crime? I actually, I, I... I wrote about it. I might have wrote about that with a, a friend of mine, and I forgot, so forgive me. But their overdose rate skyrocketed. Like seven hundred percent. Oh my god! Well, that seems That's to be I, the driving factor of why they're doing this. It's because of the prevalence. Well, I, right, there's a bigger movement. If you want to know more about it, I mean, it's uh, British Columbia. You know, they're pretty proud of their uh, safe injection site. But uh, is it is it working though? That's the. I mean, well, it. it what is it supposed to do? Get well, if it, if if the idea is people are going to, it has to be, pre, I would think, and I'm no expert, and I'm certainly, I'm coming to you for, for input and answers yeah, here. Yeah. The general idea would have to be people are going to do this. The drugs are going to have fentanyl in it, and they're going to die. If we give them a place to do it so that, that uh, Narcan could be administered and we right. have fewer overdoses, that would, I would imagine, be the metric for success, right? That, that Why would you have safe injection sh- sites if it's not to reduce overdose? If the overdose? if the overdose rate is not significantly decreasing, then I would think this endeavor is a failure. Okay. 
I, I, I just saw the statistic that I saw around the Oregon thing and our overdoses sort of spiked. Uh, and I do know there's a growing movement right now. We talked about it. I even sent out a video. I can send it to you where they're trying in Canada now to actually dispense uh, drugs under the guise that this will be sort of like a pharmaceutical version of, of the methamphetamine, the heroin, and I'm not making this up. Uh, they're going to start like dispensing that. Uh, and I think they started already okayed it, uh, which is fine if you want to do that. But if, if you go back in history, in, in not too long, let's go back maybe 20 years ago, or maybe a, a little bit longer than that. I, I will say with the pill mills, every 80 gram uh, uh, milligram Oxycontin pill, we know exactly what was in it. It was stamped on the pill 80. It had the number numerical number 80 on it. Right. And it also had the numerical 40 on it. And every 10 milligram Vicodin or whatever it is, Lortab, we knew exactly that was pharmaceutical dope. And once we were dispensing far, purely pharmaceutical dope through the pill mills, our overdose rate skyrocketed. We went from like under 10,000 back in the uh, sort of the earlier 90s of that to where we're seeing it now over a hundred thousand once you kind of opened the genie in the bottle. Well, then what, so what, what is this, the... this? Well, I'm not, if this was such a great plan, why didn't it lower overdose rates when we started dispensing pharmaceutical pills through the pill mill? Because they were legal. The pill mills were legal. They operated with impunity. Get that? And the Sacklers have, you know, been oh taken to task for that, yeah. but all of that was legal. So parents whose kids were going and just like, seeing a doctor for two minutes and then going and getting their, you know, 90, 90, 90, 90 opioids, 90 benzos, 90, whatever else they wanted that it, there's a documentary about it. The pharmacist. Oh yeah. We love it. It's great. Dreaming about it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. The truth is, is that that was all legal. There was nothing. The It was like, yeah, well, if doctors are saying you need those drugs, it's legal. Right. So anyway, you were going to finish. Well, what is the, what is, how do they reckon success or not by, by having these, uh, well, they'll tell you, like I, I start when we started earlier, they reversed 50, 50 deaths, right. Uh, with Narcan people that overdose. So they, they could claim that and they do, they claim, they'll claim they save 50 lives that way. So, but, but, but my point is, uh, if you're really an expert, why do you have any overdoses at all? You shouldn't. If you really know what you're doing in there in the safe injection site, you shouldn't have any. Uh, but, but other than that, when somebody overdoses and they come out of an overdose, they're deeper in their disease. I Absolutely. know that's counterintuitive, but Absolutely. they are. Uh, and so I, I don't see It that. lowers their bottom. Excuse me. It lowers their bottom every time they overdose. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. And they're they're not like, oh wow, I better drive better. You know, I better like straighten up. It, <laughs> right. It, it, yeah. Nobody's healthier after this, I'm sure. But yeah. I'll make well, another sort of little example, and this is just where I come from. People are free to un, you know believe what they want. I, I just got my own position, but like we generally it skyrocketed, but we generally were running eighty thousand alcohol related fatalities a year. Right. So out of those 80,000 fatalities, I don't know how many of them actually happened in a barroom or a liquor store. Usually the fatalities happen once they leave a barroom or a liquor store. Right. So under the, the guise of what if you take the same mentality and the same theory of a safe injection site, you could tell them alcoholics might as well just kind of stay in the barroom. It's the safest place for them. So that, that's really, and it's not much different, a guy who's monitoring you taking a shot of heroin or a guy who's serving you a, a shot of vodka, uh, what's the difference there? Really? I, I, I mean, as far 
It'll come back. Come on, internet. Where's Al Gore when you need him? <laughs> y- y'all are locked up. Um. Hey, there we go. Are you guys there? Oh, okay. there we go. There we go. We can hear you now. I just said, you know, I'm just going to talk about the kind of the emotional part of it, the cultural part of it. Where are we as a country if we basically say that that level of dependence is okay? Don't we as a country, don't we believe in standing people up to live their very best life? Look, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. This is part of the problem with, with relying on the government to make these moral decisions and judgments for you, because you're going to end up having, uh, people with philosophies that, I mean, I, I, I just don't think that endorsing continued drug use is the best course of action at the same, at the same time. I mean, you've got to, I've, I at least think in my mind, well, because fentanyl and pill presses are a real problem Mm -hmm. because you, you can make pills that are indistinguishable from, right from, I can at least think in my mind this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I don't know that the correct band-aid, though, is let's just decriminalize all drug use. If the government, if I as a judge, Daniel, we'll go back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. If I was a judge and I sat there this, you know, and said, well, you use drugs, but you told me about a little trauma you had in your past. And so, oh, I feel so bad for you, which, by the way, I saw a lot of judges do, which is to me, the terrifying part about drug courts and, you know, oh, it's, I'm so sorry. And you had a tough week in therapy or whatever. And so, okay, we're going to change the rules for you and you won't have to serve your two days. Cause remember it's a quick consequence, right? So you use, you have a quick consequence. You got a couple days, you know, to think about it. And then you get right back out and you get, you know, up your treatment up your peer support recovery, all that kind of stuff. So there's protocols there that that move you toward the miracle of true recovery. Right. Nobody graduated from my drug court or DUI court without 365 days of continuous sobriety. How do we know that you have that? Because we had a touch with every one of my clients every single day. Every single day, you were either getting tested, you were going to treatment, you were hitting a peer... Uh, group recovery. You were uh, meeting with your probation officer who could spring a UA on you. You you know, we had a touch seven days a week with these people for a year um, or more. If they had a relapse, they started over. I mean, you, you didn't get out without 365 days right. and you had to do that within 18 months because I did not believe keep working harder for someone then they were working for themselves. Amen to that. Yeah. You were going to relapse at nine months. Okay. We'd give you another shot potentially, but if you're going to relapse at four months, at six months, at eight months, then you're using, you've just changed your using pattern, right? You're holding it together for two months 
and then you're using in any event let me go back it is so sad i mean literally truly heartbreaking i was going to say mad but really what's the deeper emotion anger always has like a deeper emotion fear sadness yeah fear i'm really 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 sad that our country has come to this that we that the government sanctions using your government is telling you it's perfectly okay to use thereby taking away one potential intervention and saying that you know this is totally fine go ahead we understand you poor pathetic thing you have a disease i mean it's not you poor pathetic thing if you had cancer and that was the government's response which was here's another cigarette you have lung cancer here's another cigarette we know you're going to continue to smoke right so oh you poor pathetic thing you have cancer here's a cigarette right I mean, does that make sense? No, no, it doesn't. And it, it, it doesn't. And, and it's so Ugh. I know, I know. So I know I'm, I'm a very solution guy. I love solutions. I want to jump into the solution. I hate bitching and moaning and complaining about how things are so bad. And with, without coming up with some sort of solid solution, whether it be something that actually works or not, my mind immediately goes into, all right, well, let's solve this problem. Okay. Right. So what, what can be done now to, to uh, help the, the government understand that this is not something that is helping an alcoholic and addict. This is something that is detrimental to anyone who is trying to get sober. What is the solution? What can we work towards? What is the solution? Well, just so you guys know, the federal government's like a great big, huge tank. It's like a, a like a huge barge, okay? And to turn a barge, to, it is it takes a long time, right, right, right? Right. But you know, you get a if you were to have an executive branch who came in with some big bold ideas, we certainly do what we can through our not for profit. We have touches with congressmen. Um, and other people to explain, you know, on the Hill at meaning Capitol Hill right. in the Senate and the Congress in order to try to uh, give solution. It's amazing to find out how much people, a lot of congressmen on the Hill do understand this. Um, and it's really tracking legislation. That sounds a little boring. I think it's going to take uh, a new administration who has a different approach to, because everything that I'm not going to get too weedy here because it'll be very boring, but really the way the federal government pushes their policies is through money. So everyone's very dependent on federal money. So you put conditions on the money. So it's a carrot and a stick. So it's grants. So if you get a block grant to your state to be handed out for opioid, you know, for opioid treatment or meth treatment, or, you know, a lot of times they make very, you know, lanes. That was what I did in the federal government as I oversaw $7 billion grant right, um, component. And so what I learned was, is that you put your policies in as conditions. So if the condition is just for it, it would never read like this, but if the condition is, you know, um, we support, you know, we'll support harm reduction, which honestly, there was a grant that Art found that said that, um, you know, that we will support harm reduction policies, then that's where the federal money goes. 
And in turn, all of these organizations and treatment centers and different, all the people who are dependent on that federal money will then make sure they're meeting the condition, which is why our not-for-profit, Recovery for America Now, supports and tries to counteract that and say, if you don't want to change your model, if you want to do what, you know, say the four of us understand is real getting someone stood back up on their feet, the miracle of recovery, we provide a pot of money to your treatment center so that you can keep people in treatment longer. The treatment center in turn has to show us that they are have jobs training, they have education, you know, they'll help people stand people up with education, they have life, life skills training, they have peer support recovery, um, they have a spiritual component to their program. Again, this is something that people need to be, have the option of. Um, we're not saying that that is a catch-all or a, a, an end-all, sure. but there needs to be a 360-degree long-term care, family treatment, we need to make sure that these people have a long-term opportunity. And most people, you know, do the 28 days, the 30 days, maybe four weeks, and then they're just back in their house and told to go to outpatient treatment. Right. We're trying to eradicate that and not eradicate, but give options to treatment centers. And that's what our money does. We don't give it person by person. Daniel, Drew, if you came and they said, hey, we got this guy and he's so great and he needs a scholarship. No, we would say here are the treatment centers that have our money so he could stay longer if they determined that he was a good candidate for that scholarship. Look, y'all so, are doing y'all are doing the Lord's work really because the the older I get, the more I'm convinced of, you know, the government, the federal government is an untrustworthy ally. <laughs> Really, I think they promote ideas that just aren't good. Uh, at least in this this uh, this area. So, if people, if the listeners, and hopefully they do, wish to help, how can they help Recovery for America now? Well, I mean, first of all, we love your prayers. Most important, always in everything. Um, but you know, money. Obviously, if every money you, all the money you give, my husband and I have jobs and we do this as a, because we want to do it because it's so important. Every dollar you give goes to treatment. We don't have overhead or admin costs or staff costs or anything like that. So you're helping someone get sober. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for your uh, contribution. We really, really, really appreciate that. Yes, ma'am. Drew, I know, I mean, thank you for having us on the show and for highlighting this. But that's how you help because we are really, that's really what we're doing is, you know, we vet the treatment centers. Again, it's about keeping people in long-term right. and helping them get um, the treatment that they need throughout their entire journey and not just dropping them after, you know, they call it a spin dry, um, 30 days back at home, nothing's right. changed. No tools. Right. And yeah. I know you, you guys were talking about on the podcast uh, with Dr. Drew um, about how it's important that the treatment facilities that you guys um, support have uh, 
long-term support and long-term care Mm -hmm. and also programs set up to help them once they get out of treatment. And like Art was talking about in that podcast, you know, recovery starts when you leave treatment. So what, what do you guys do to vet these treatment facilities and how do you ensure that the treatment facilities that you support have a a, a wonderful blooming recovery uh, uh, environment around them in the society that they are in currently? Well, yeah, we, we, well, we just, I mean, that's kind of my department because of the grant making um, uh, experience I have. Absolutely. So, you know, for us now, because we are smaller, we're not doing this on a super large scale is that we, uh, we just talk, we talk to them, visit them. We see, we've seen so many treatment centers. Every time we travel, we go somewhere will, you know, look and go and we want to see exactly what they're doing because something can read one way and, and not be that way. Not right. Play. Yeah. So you guys are so boots on the ground. You actually we're go very hands on at this point. Um, if that changed, we would certainly let you know. And and then on the back end, you know, they have to they're very accountable to us. So it's identifying those treatment centers and then the accountability piece. That's what we do. Uh, so I mean, and our goal, you know, the treatment centers that we fund need to have a goal of abstinence. Right. And that means from everything. Right. So that that is the goal for the client. So we would want to understand that protocol, um, even if they came in and needed some of that, you know, quote unquote, harm reduction in the beginning, then we would, you know, want to see what's the protocol to getting them off. Right. So before you send any money that way, you're going to be listener uh, and and viewer rest assured that um, this is not something that, that Katie and Art are just, they, they willy nilly just go and, and, and uh, seek out treatment facilities to send. They, they put the hard work in on the front end to ensure that your loved one or you, when, when you go to this facility, you're going to be taken care of in the best possible way. And they're not, they, they, they will go. They, well, they have they the still, morals and values that align with what people right, right. really need. This, you guys are doing seriously incredible things, like yeah. seriously incredible things. So we're about out of time, but I, I want the listener and viewer um, to, um, to, to remember exactly how we can get in touch with you guys. So the, the foundation is Recovery for America Now. You can find these guys at Recovery for America dot org dot o-r-g what was that website again recovery for america <laughs> dot o-r-g and these guys are doing amazing work you can go go on their website at recovery for america dot o-r-g and you can go down to the bottom and hit uh, donate now or make a donation you can also uh, scan a qr code that's on the website and it just makes it gotta incredi- make it easy these days incredibly easy there's no reason why you should not help and support these individuals so um we, we are, Drew and I are unbelievably grateful that you guys took an hour out of your time. Thank you so much. To come and talk to two Thank you. nerds like us. Um, you we're, know. we're super, super grateful. Well, thank you so much for allowing us to come on your program. I know. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you so thank you much. You Absolutely. We, we are, we are here you. to help in any way we possibly can. So. I know. You guys are amazing. Thank, thank you, you so, much. so, so much. Y'all have a good weekend. Bye, Next guys. Next up, guys, Dr. Right. Drew. Awesome. <laughs>